Hey, everyone. It's Mary. Quick heads up here at the top. This impeachment story, it is moving super fast. By the time we record a show for you, a new document is being released or someone's about to testify on Capitol Hill. We want to give you the big picture on all this. But we also want to tell you about things that are not happening in Washington. So for the next couple of days, that's what we're going to do. It doesn't mean we're going to be ignoring what the House of Representatives is up to, though. So let us know what questions you have as you watch all this play out. Is there someone you really want to hear from? Is there a story we're ignoring? Shoot me a tweet. Let me know. I'm at Mary's desk. For the last month, the school board in Howard County, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., has been inundated with these letters, hundreds of letters. Some of them are neatly typed and contain graphs and charts. Some are handwritten, like the one from a fourth grader from Triadelphia Ridge Elementary School. Almost all of them say the same thing. In the words of the fourth grader, please, 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 please don't change our high school. There are four E's in the last please. The Howard County Board of Education, they certainly got an earful tonight from parents and students. These letter writers are pushing back on a plan to switch where local kids go to school in a district that ProPublica has called highly segregated. People in Howard County are protesting a proposed redistricting plan, which would reassign just over 7,300 students in the county's elementary, middle, and high schools. Ripping students out of their communities, putting them on long bus rides across the county, that poses real risks to their health. Howard County Super Looking at the people organizing against this plan, the main thing that's tough to square, for me, is that in 2019, I just didn't expect to see a protester carrying around a sign that says, no forced busing. Yeah, <laughs> go on dcurbanmoms.com and you'll see even worse stuff. Josh Starr lives one county away. He spent years as a superintendent, first in Connecticut, then in Maryland. He's taken on desegregation like this in the past. It's it's really, really hard. I mean, the joke is um, that you only do redistricting if you want to get rid of a superintendent or if there's an interim. And when I did this when I was in Stanford, Connecticut, they were actually starting on a redistricting process when I became superintendent. And I said, look, you, you need to hold off on this because I won't be able to get my footing. So we actually held off for a bit because it's such a difficult process that can really divide a community and it takes over everything uh, and it can ruin a superintendent's support. So you have to be very careful. The board has to be very careful of how they approach it. I wanted to talk to Josh because he's been here before, leading a school district through the painful process of figuring out what equity looks like. And part of what makes the Howard County story so interesting is that it isn't just white parents who are protesting. It's black and brown parents, South Asian parents, saying they just don't want to leave their neighborhood schools. Part of the challenge when you're doing these kinds of things is the individual stories are the ones that get uh, put into the forefront, right? Because we see schooling as a private commodity, not a public good. And it's hard to convince people that, okay, you're in a public school system, and sometimes you gotta make some adjustments in order to serve the whole. And people don't wanna hear that. And so the letters that you get, the testimonies that come up, the 
kid that is put in front of the Board of Education by their parent who says, if you move me, I will be destroyed. Those stories are what dominate the narrative and the real and good reasons for wanting to do a redistricting get pushed aside because those 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 stories about the individuals um, loom so large and are, are so attractive. So I asked Josh to tell me a different kind of story, the story of desegregating a school system from the inside, what he learned from it, what he'd tell those parents in the county next door. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we talk about Josh, I want to talk about Howard County. Howard County started thinking about busing kids to different schools because of overcrowding. Some schools were too full, others were too empty. And then the superintendent decided to restructure the districts, integrate. Josh Starr says this is part of what's making this debate so fraught. Redistricting for enrollment purposes and crowding purposes alone is complex and difficult and contentious. To add in the layer of integration, whether it's by race or socioeconomics, just adds another layer to it um, and makes it that much more difficult, contentious, and complex. Ultimately more rewarding, but still, you, you know, the process um, is just sort of bereft with all these, you know, potholes. When I was trying to understand Howard County a little better, I started following the protesters online. They said busing their kids would deprive them of sleep and make it harder for their children to do after-school activities. One immigrant family said they felt the redistricting plan put their American dream under attack. And I found this video, testimony from a mom opposed to Howard County's plan. She's black, a lawyer, and she gave the school board a history lesson about Oliver Brown, the plaintiff in Brown v. Board of Education. He did not understand why his daughter, Linda Brown, could not go to the predominantly white school, which was right across the street from his house. Why did his daughter have to be bused across town to the closest predominantly black school? So it wasn't really a racial issue. Other plaintiffs joined in to make it what we now consider uh, a racial de- uh, desegregation. It was a busing issue. Josh Starr has a completely different take on what's happening here. So I asked him, what do these protesting parents not get? In my view, it's about race, right? It always is in America and American public schools. Uh, I get in trouble for saying that a lot, but. Yeah. I mean, I wondered, like, if that parent was here, she'd say, but I'm black and I'm telling you, I want my kid to go to the local public school. Well, so I think, and look, I'm, I am a privileged, middle-aged white male, right? Education systems are designed in a way that reflect all the institutional racism and bias that is in America, 
right? Property taxes, the way we draw lines. I mean, it, you know, who teaches? It, it goes back to this deep institutional designs um, of the systems that reflect the racism that's inherent in American society. But that doesn't mean that a black or Latino parent or an Asian parent or whatever may be doesn't have the right to say, I want X, Y, or Z for my kid, right? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that the stories that we're seeing, the individual stories at the top are actually, they can be distracting because the work you're doing is deeper and more systemic. And so the stories at the top may not help us understand what the project at hand. That's right. That's that. That's exactly right. It was 2005 when Josh started working as a superintendent in Stamford, Connecticut. And part of the reason he took on school segregation so aggressively is that in Stamford, there was this policy on the books. It required the schools to be socioeconomically balanced. But Josh wanted to go beyond this basic requirement and integrate individual classrooms. The major issue was that within schools, there was deep segregation called tracking. And that was actually in policy going back to the 70s. So the idea was desegregate the schools, but segregate the classes so that kids would be in in ability groups. So you had white kids. And, and at the time when I got there, there were more Asians. You had white and Asian kids who were in the advanced classes, getting the best stuff. And you had black kids and brown kids who were not. And it was just incredibly clear um, how rigid that was. Uh, so that's that's what we dismantled, um, along with the redistricting and all that that just had to be done to balance out the demographics. We also dismantled the tracking that existed. Yeah, I want to talk about the tracking. How did you see it when you walked into a school? Like when you first took the job and you started going to all the schools in your district, what did you see? I still remember going to one school. Um, I won't name the school, but I'm walking with the principal and it was clear that she just wanted to show me the classes with the white kids. And I said, I then said, like, you know, show me a lower level class. And she basically just, you know, had to, she, she looked around, she's like, okay, she realized the class with the African American and Latino kids was the lower level class. And I mean, you literally could see in every classroom the difference um, just by the nature of the kids who were sitting in the class. Um, it was stark. Uh, you know, that manifested then in a high school, one of our high schools, very, very diverse, big high school, 2,400 kids. They had the black cafeteria and the white cafeteria. Um, and it was, it was, a you know, a black cafeteria and a white cafeteria. Facto. Yeah, it was de facto. It wasn't de jure. Right. I mean, kids just naturally gravitate. And part of that is because when they were scheduled for certain classes and who's in the classes and you go with the kids, you know, and if you, if you are a, a white kid who is in an advanced placement class, you are going to be hanging out with those kids. And if you are black or a Latino kid in a remedial class or a low level class, you're hanging out with those kids. You know, so you just you saw it everywhere. How did the community feel about this? Like, did they even recognize what was happening? Well, that's the interesting part. So some of them did not. There were certainly some black and Latino families and community members who said, wait a second, why is it that our kids aren't performing um, why is it that our kids aren't in top classes? But a lot of people just thought, okay, this is just the way it is, right? And particularly because the elementary schools, I mean, the schools were so integrated in terms of the school building itself, right? So people felt good. Oh, my kid's going to school with kids of all different races, et cetera. And I don't think, 
a lot of them didn't know that it was going on. Um, and then once we started, you know, I, I basically made it very, very public. And a lot of teachers then and school administrators and parents started saying, yeah, thank you for naming it. We know it's an issue and no one's wanted to talk about it. So some people just didn't know because, you know, they don't pay that much attention. And they didn't realize some people just said, OK, that's just the way it is. And and then some people, of course, wanted to change it. But many others or some others were dead set against changing the status quo and having their privilege taken. What was their argument? Oh, ranging from if you put those kids into these higher level classes, they won't be prepared and you'll dumb down the curriculum. The teachers aren't ready for it. So people, you know, they'd wrap themselves up in all this stuff um, that, you know, Robin D'Angelo talks about in White Fragility, right? That uh, that's not about the real issue, which is just they, a lot of white people just want to make sure their kids continue to get what they perceive as the best, even if it's not. Hmm. You say it's not the best. And you really made this argument when you talk about this, that when you desegregate classrooms and and redistrict shift kids around and, and make sure they're exposed to kids who are different than them, it's good for everyone academically. And I think that that's something that people still, they don't understand it. So I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit. Yeah, it's hard to wrap their head around, right? But the evidence from, you know, 30, 40 years is so clear. Um, so when you detract, when you integrate classes, whatever you want to call it, two things happen, or a few things happen. One is the performance of white kids does not decline whatsoever, right? They continue to do well academically. And part of that is because, you know, and this, this may not be totally fair, but we have a lot of schools that I call first do no harm schools with just add water kids. The kids are going to do fine regardless, hmm. right? If they come from a family that's supportive, they you know, literacy rich environment at home, they're getting outside tutoring, the kids are going to do well regardless. Um, so, so white kids tend to do just as well in integrated classes um, as they always did. African-American and Latino kids um, more vulnerable kids, kids who report their, their achievement goes up invariably. And the social awareness of all kids increases substantially. So kids sense of, yeah, multiculturalism is important. Yeah. You know what? It's great to be friends with different kinds of kids. Yeah. I really appreciate diversity. Those factors that measurements, those like that increases for everybody, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Latino, Whatever you may be, it increases for everybody when you're in integrated classes. Fights over busing, the kind of fights that are happening in Howard County right now, Josh says these fights are some of the toughest for a superintendent to take on. There's a real legitimate issue around busing policies, right? I mean, if your kid is going from a 20-minute bus ride to an hour-long bus ride, that's a problem. And I would understand why a parent wouldn't want that. Yeah, because, I mean, when... <laughs> The busing issue, I feel like, is where this gets complicated because you have parents coming in and saying, listen, this is going to quadruple my commute and my kid might not be able to do after school activities. And, you know, this is just going to really change what our lives would have been, whereas we moved here so we could go to the school five minutes away. But now that's not a possibility. Yeah, that's right. And and it is the biggest challenge with this. You know, we, when we polled the American public on this in 2017, I think it was about 70, maybe 72 percent of parents said they wanted their kids to be in a racially diverse school. But only about 20, maybe 22 percent of parents said they would be willing to accept a longer commute in order to achieve that. 
41% of African-American parents said they'd be willing. I think it was like 16% of, of white parents said that. So people do want diverse schools, but they don't want to work for it, right? They don't want to have to commute longer. And, and the busing issue is real because people are segregated by housing. You can't be too disruptive. You have board policies. Uh, there's an environmental concern as well. You know, there's a whole bunch of issues and, and you have to be reasonable um, with that. But, you know, yeah, assuming that you've taken care of all those issues, right? You're not sending kids on buses for an hour and a half, or whatever it may be. Um, and it's reasonable, it's within board policy. You, you just gotta do it. And people will adjust, they always do. Another way Josh helped parents adjust started outside the school system. It had to do with housing. I went to the realtors and I said, you, you guys have to be clear with people about what the rules are because they come to me and complain that you know, oh, the realtors told me that my kid was going to X school and then I could go to or I could go to Y magnet school. Now you're telling me I can't. And I said, well, I don't control the realtors. But we, we were able to effectively decrease complaints about magnet enrollment system by my second year by just building in a lot of transparency and communication. And we also got the realtors to build into their stuff uh, sort of a, a, a disclaimer that the school that you saw on the map that was aligned to your house was not necessarily the school your kid is going to go to, that the district has the authority. We built in those kinds of mechanisms, too. I'm so interested that you went to the realtors. That seems like one of those things you wouldn't necessarily think to do. But of course, it's going to change how people see these issues. Yeah, it was fascinating. And and the, the, the really interesting thing about it was a number of the realtors were so happy I was taking this on because I was being public about it. And they're like, look, I grew up in Stanford. I love this community. This is part of what we celebrate. I love the fact that you're pushing it out there and celebrating the fact that we do something other districts don't. They were like, this is this is great, and it actually makes it attractive in my sales pitch to, to people. Others said, all right, whatever, I don't care. I just need to sell the house to you know, the most expensive homes, to the, most, to, to the highest priced buyers, and I'm gonna tell them what I'm gonna tell them, right? So it was very interesting to hear the reactions I got from the realtors, but you have to go to them because, you know, parents don't understand that realtors don't have to tell you the, the full truth. Hmm. It was striking to me how long it took you to lay the groundwork in Connecticut for the changes that you rolled out. And it involved recruiting teachers to talk about the trouble with tracking and, and recruiting parents and, and sort of building everyone up. And you've described this moment in 2009. You gave an opening day speech and you announced, like, this is the year we're going to do it. Can you describe the reaction you got? Yeah, I got a great reaction. I mean, it was so I was dropping hints for four years, right? I mean, I had to because I had to let people know that I was going to get there. Um, I had to make sure that my allies were going to go along with me and that they weren't saying, why isn't he moving quick enough? And I had to signal to people, look, this is real and we got to do something about it, but we're not just going to do it willy nilly. Um, and I found, again, that a lot of teachers and principals and administrators, many of whom had gone through the school system and had been tracked and didn't didn't want that didn't want to be in a system like that. Um, they they got it right. So when I did say, you know, every year I kind of dropped a pebble. I said, why are we doing this? You know, what's what's up, people? And then when I finally said we are going to stop doing this, um, yeah, I think I got a standing ovation um, from a number of people, and they were very happy that I said, no, we're we're going there. Right. But it took me time to line up all the various factors within the system or the elements of the system so that it would be successful. 
I was struck, too, by the fact that your work in Stanford was kind of unique in that there was this law that required the schools to be racially balanced. Do you feel like when you look at situations like what's happening in Howard County, they're a little bit hemmed in because they may not have similar requirements? Yeah, I will say that I could not have done this without the voluntary integration policy that we had. Well, I could have, but it would have been a heck of a lot harder. And frankly, without a voluntary integration policy, you don't have a mechanism, a trigger to to push the conversation. So that piece was incredibly important. So people did know that there was this complex system, but at the same time, you know, when parents came up to me and said, you know, we're going to sue you or whatever, I said, okay, go for it. This has lasted for 40 years. You know, the schools are required to be integrated in Stanford. And I said to the board, and I said publicly, if you want, we can look at the voluntary desegre- uh, voluntary integration policy. That's legit. Nobody wanted to touch that. Even people who were opposed to the detracking work, they did not want to want to even think about putting that on the table. Um, and, and given the fact that we had no child left behind, um, which I was not a huge fan of No Child Left Behind, but what it did is it, expo- it, it required me to do something and it required the board and schools to do something um, about the incredible achievement gaps that existed. So interesting. It really shows the power of these laws that get on the books and years later, they're they're really important to sort of giving political cover to well, that's the right. work you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's one of my greatest concerns about ESSA, frankly. And and I was not... A, oh, what's ESSA? Oh, I'm sorry. ESSA is the um, federal law overseeing schools that goes back, you know, 50 years. It has been called No Child Left Behind under Bush. Um, then it was raised to the top under Obama. Now it's ESSA. So it's just a different name of the federal policy that guides um, schools. And under the current administration, it actually started under Obama. It, we've gone back to local control in a way that I think is really problematic is left to their own devices. School boards and superintendents for that matter will typically just maintain the status quo. And unless there's a federal law or in most cases a um, court action, you know, somebody sues, um, there's legal action taken, uh, school improvement efforts and system efforts are not organized around the needs of the most vulnerable kids. Things regress to the mean. And I'm very concerned about how that's gonna um, rear its ugly head now as there's an increase in local control. Josh says, these decisions about schools, they're so local. That means individuals like him end up having a lot of power. That is, until they don't. And that's part of the challenge with all this, right? You you do it, you hope that it lasts long after. And I know the structural kind of technical things we put in place uh, made a difference. I know student achievement increased when I was there and and all that kind of stuff. But unless you have someone that's going to continue to drive it and improve it, Um, you know, the the gains can't always be sustained. And that is a huge challenge. Josh Starr, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Joshua Starr is now the CEO of PDK International, a consulting firm. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. I am Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow.